Mark chapter 6, verse 14. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why the miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guest. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came and immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. This is God's word. Please be seated. Good morning, everybody. My name is Craig Cody. I'm one of the elders here at Christ Community. We're glad to have you with us. Just a quick little logistical item. These things, uh, Mark journals, many of you already have them. There are some more Mark journals at the back. If you're with us Sunday after Sunday, we're, we're working our way through the gospel of Mark. We're learning about who Jesus is and what it means to be a disciple of him. And today's no different. One of the things, one of the tools we wanted to put in your hand as we're doing that is uh, these little journals that have the text on one side and then some space for you to take notes on the other. And so it's helpful. It's a helpful way when you're studying through a book uh, to kind of track where we've been, what you're learning, and also as helpful tools you're studying it on your own. At least that's why we put them in your hands. So, again, at the back, if you want to grab one on your way out, we'd love for you to have it. Um, continuing through Mark, I'm glad to be back with you guys. I am excited about all the ways that this paints the picture of who Jesus is and then our, what, it, what our response ought to be in light of who he is. Today is unique, right? Not, not Jesus is, is not what's in view. It's more this guy named John. But before we get there, I want to introduce you to a friend of mine. It's a, a man I've actually never met. He's a brother that I know um, of, and I love him. But I, I met his wife and his kids. It's a real guy. I'm not making this up. Um, I met his wife and his kids. I played baseball with his boys. Um, and we're going to, this is not his real name, but, his, but we'll call him Adam. Um, and Adam was a man that worked on a farm that some friends of mine ran in China. Uh, he was not a follower of Jesus. Um, he actually followed another religion. Um, my friends, though, did know Jesus. And as they planted the seeds on this farm and nurtured fruit trees and reaped yearly harvests, they also would toss the seeds of the gospel, uh, the good news of Jesus Christ. 
And they tossed the gospel to Adam and to others like him. Those seeds of the gospel grew in Adam's heart. Adam watched these people who followed Jesus, the disciples, these disciples of Jesus, and he read God's word and he came face to face with Jesus. And the more that he read, the more that he saw, the more he began to realize that Jesus truly is the Son of God. And Adam gave his life to Jesus Christ. And then Adam began to tell others about Jesus. And soon many believed. And in a place where there was no church, where there were no Christians before, Adam now had a church that he was leading. Um, And it grew, that little church. And then suddenly, the government arrested Adam and threw him in jail and gave him 16 years in prison. When he was thrown in jail, he had a two-year-old and a newborn. They gave him a trumped-up charge, but the real reason that they put him in there was because he had a new king, and it wasn't the government, it was Jesus. As I preach right now, where you're sitting right now, Adam is in jail. Adam is in jail right now. He is in chains, unjustly jailed for following Jesus. And today's passage focuses on a man faithful to Jesus, yet also unjustly jailed, right? And then he's eventually beheaded. Why? Why is this here? That's the thing that kept sticking out to me as I got to this passage. We have this narrative of Jesus and what he's doing in the, in, in the world around him and in the lives of his disciples. And then there's this interlude, right? Uh, from the Jesus narrative, we have this seemingly out-of-place episode of John. Why is this here? That's what we need to ask. It's a good question that we, will answer, that we will eventually answer, but fundamentally, this is here for you. This section on John is here for you. It's here for us. This is here for Adam in jail today. This is a call to be disciples of Jesus. So, Let me pray, and then we'll dive in. Father, we just, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we lift up Adam to you right now, where he is in jail. We ask that by the power of your Spirit, you would minister to his soul and lift him up. Thank you for all the great work you're doing in him and through him. And Lord, all of us, we come here from different places today. Some of us feel great about life. Some of us have no clue what life is about. Some of us um, don't even know what to think. Lord, come and speak to us. Speak to us through your powerful word. Give our discipleship strength today. Help us to follow you no matter what. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so before we dive into the text, let's just take a minute and get a little context, remembering for a second who John is. So we're going to talk about this guy. This is John the Baptist, okay? He was a man, and he's a man who was set apart set apart. What do I mean by that? Well, from the day that he was born, before he was born, his birth was prophesied. The Gospel of Luke records that. And in addition to that, also in Luke, before he was born, he was filled with the Holy Spirit in the womb. The power of God was upon him even before he was born. So he was a man who was set apart. He, was, he also lived apart. And what do I mean by that? He lived out in the wilderness in dry, barren, desert-like place. He wore crude clothes. He ate locusts and honey. He lived apart from the ways and the places and the people, right? He was also a man who sought the presence of God. 
Now, think of Israel. Those of you who are familiar with the history of Israel, after the exodus from Egypt, God drew them into the wilderness. Why? To be with him. For many reasons, one of the big reasons was to be with him. So John went to the wilderness. Why? John wanted to be with God. He wanted God. And he called others to join him in seeking God. He called others out to purify themselves, symbolized in that ritual of the, of the baptism waters, to get ready for God. He wanted to call those people out to get ready for God himself, God in flesh, Jesus, the Messiah. John's passion for God is really important when we consider what unfolds in this passage in front of us today. Think about John's life. Day after day, in the wilderness, that bleak and lonely place, but with the engulfing passion of his heart to be with the living God. So let me ask this question. What happens when you're in an environment like that where you are actively seeking, you're actively in the presence of God day after day? What happens when you're with him like that? Well, many things, but I will tell you this. For John, it forged his resolute sense of morality and righteousness in the fire of the presence of God Almighty. It forged, I'll say that again, it forged his resolute sense of morality and righteousness in the presence of the Almighty God. John lived in the presence of holiness And thus, when he looked out over the world and he saw all kinds of things, all kinds of sin, people rejecting God and his ways, he felt compelled to cry out. He had to say something. He would call out sin and nothing would stop him. He would continue to preach the truth, no matter what it cost him. And as one pastor said, he would one day lose his head, but he would never lose his conscience. John's love for God And his hatred for sin made him what I've seen called a crisis man. A crisis man. Listen to the words of Jim Elliott, who is a missionary martyr in Central America. He said this. It was a prayer that he was praying. Father, make me a crisis man. Bring those I contact to decision. Let me not be a milepost on a single road. Make me a fork that men must turn one way or another on facing Christ in me. John was the crisis man. By fearlessly calling out sin and calling people to repent, he was bringing people to a crisis of faith, to a moment of decision. Are you going to go this way or that? Are you going to go with him or not? He, by the power of God, John, by the power of God, became a fork in the road. And that brings us to Herod in our story today. He's about to meet John on this spiritual crossroads, right? But before we go there, I just want to just give you a little bit of the idea of the structure of this passage. Um, This section is on the heels of what Pat talked about last week, about Jesus um, working many miracles and then sending out his disciples to do the same. uh, Herod had heard about what Jesus was doing, and then verses 14 through 16, it's Herod's reaction to that. But verses 17 to the end of the chapter are a flashback, which is the crux of the story today. It's one of those situations, you've seen it in movies, where the camera kind of zooms in on the, on the person's face as they're looking off into the distance. 
and then it kind of zooms in and it blurs and then it fades back into clarity in a new scene, right? Well, that's what we've got. And the camera is zooming right now in on Herod. This is Herod's flashback. That's what's verses 17 through 29. And we're going to run chronologically through it. So that's where we're going to start right now, verse 17. So look at that with me. This is Mark chapter 6 and verse 17. For it was Herod who had, who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. Herod was the king. He was the king over that little region, which means, really, he did as he pleased. He did whatever he wanted to. And thus, when a madman from the desert comes out and starts telling him that everything that he's doing in his, relationship, in his relationships are wrong, he had him hold off to jail. Herod had John hauled off to jail. The jail was also Herod's palace. What a delightful place to live, huh? The, the jail was in the, and the palace was in a, a city called Machaerus. It's in modern-day Jordan. It's a desert city, a boundary city. And so it was fortified because it was looking out onto the border of another country. It was a dry and harsh place. It sat on a high ridge above the Dead Sea. You could look down. People still go there today for tourist trips because you get a good view of the Dead Sea. Again, the palace is on the top where Herod lived. The dungeon is on the bottom. And I read that if you can go there and you can still see the dungeon today. It still exists. You can see some of the hooks hanging on the walls that prisoners, just like John, and John himself probably, was chained to. And I want to tell you those details about the castle and about the chains and about the dungeon and about the dryness and the bleakness of it all because I want us to feel, in whatever small way that we can, sitting here right now, how difficult it would have been for our brother John. It would have been very, very hard. Verse 20. Herod feared John knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. It was John's unrelenting commitment to purity that landed him in jail. But it was Herod's fascination with John that kept John alive. Something about John intrigued Herod, right? Something about him stood out. It froze Herod. It confused him. It actually made him afraid of John. Herod, who should be afraid of no one, all authority and power, was afraid of John. The scriptures say that Herod knew that he was a righteous and holy man. That came from the time and the presence of God. That came from the Holy Spirit of God. And Herod knew that he couldn't just simply put this man to death. This man preached something true. This man preached something righteous, something otherworldly. Some sort of power was in him that made him stay his hand from just immediately executing him. I wonder, too, I've been thinking about this. I wonder, too, if Herod, because it says that Herod would have John regularly come and teach him. Why would Herod do that? Why would Herod want to hear from John over and over again? I wonder if Herod was trying to respond or starting to respond in little ways to John's teaching. Oh, wow, maybe I'll stop doing that. Maybe I'll straighten out that part of my life. Maybe I'll do that better. But this fascination that Herod had with John never gave way to real belief, to repentance. And there's a warning here for us. Listening to someone speak good truth can give the impression that somehow 
righteousness and holiness get absorbed. Maybe you even think that as you're looking at me right now. Just because I'm saying something true or I'm saying something right, that you're absorbing holiness or righteousness. If we listen to the preacher preach, we might become better Christians or better people. Like Herod, we can aspire to better living and to do more good deeds, but what matters most is this, our heart. That has to change. John's message, the message of the Bible, is one where our hearts need to be completely changed, where we need to be born again. Righteousness, holiness, goodness come not by our works, but by faith in the Son of God. Friends, listen to me. Herod listened. He was fascinated, intrigued, stimulated, challenged to probably be the best version of himself in a way that he had never heard before. John's message hit him, but Herod did not respond. And in the process, he lost his soul. John's message to Herod to turn from his sin and to trust in Jesus is the same one we preach today. Do not be unresponsive to this message. You must respond. How do you respond? You believe. You repent. What does that mean? You repent. That means you turn away from your sin and you turn to God. You believe that Jesus was sent to take away your sins. Do not come here. Do not sit here today and do nothing. Let the powerful words of the Spirit of God fall upon your heart and respond. And I would add this, just in light of Herod's story. Do not delay. Do not wait. You are sitting here right now by the sovereign design of God himself. If you're in this room and you're hearing my words, God has something to say to you. God is speaking to you. Will you respond? Have you trusted in him? Do not delay. Herod delayed, and he lost his soul, which is the next section, Herod losing his soul. So the story unfolds, right? This birthday party. Herod had a birthday party. He threw it for himself. And with all the officials there, uh, Herod wanted to roll out the the red carpet. He had the wine. He had the food. He had the entertainment. And then Herodias' daughter came out and danced, and he was overcome. And then he declares to her in a very Esther-like way, if you're familiar with that story, he says this in verse 22, if you're looking at your Bible. It's chapter 6 and verse 22. Ask me whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. His pride and his desire and his lack of moral backbone conspire against him right here. And they do him in. The dancer daughter scuttles back to mom, asks mom, what should I do? What should I ask for? And Herodias, her mother, sees her chance. Go and ask for John the Baptist's head. So she comes back and makes a request. And here is Herod at the crossroads. This is his moment. Verse 26. And the king was exceedingly sorry. Exceedingly sorry. In another place it says intensely sad. That's the way that word translates. Intensely sad. There's, it's actually used only one other place in Mark. And it's of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane just before he drinks the cup of the wrath of God. That's how intense Herod's soul is conflicted right here. The agony that he feels in this moment. 
He knows who, he, there's something about John. And yet, all these people, I'm going to lose face. I know that John is a holy man, and yet, I'm the king. I got to show, I got to show who I am. I got to show that I've got that authority and that power. And then the verse continues, verse 26. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. It's tragic. This is a tragic turn of events. He does not lay down these things. He lays down his soul. He gives in and orders the execution of the man about whom Jesus said, Among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. And just like that, the prophet of God is beheaded, and it's a display of mockery. They take his head, and just like all the other food at the party, they put it on a platter and serve it up. And the story closes like this, verse 29. When, the disciples, when his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. And then the narrative, if you continue past verse 29 to verse 30, it picks up right where it left off and back in verse 13 with the disciples and Jesus. What is this? Why is this here? This is a hard word. This is a sad story. John, the second Elijah, didn't ascend to heaven in a chariot of fire like his predecessor. He went headless to the tomb. So we ask ourselves again, why is this here? What does God want us to see here in this account of John? And this is my suggestion to you. This is my suggested answer to you. John is a living illustration to us. God wants us to do what John did. He wants you to proclaim the good news, to call people out of sin, to repentance and trust in Jesus, and to die. This is a call to count the cost of discipleship, to understand what's at stake in following Jesus. You are called to follow in John's footsteps. How do we follow in John's footsteps? Here are three ways. One, we proclaim the same message. We proclaim the same prophetic message. That's, what, that's the message that the disciples were just proclaiming when Jesus had sent them out just prior to our passage. In verse uh, 12 of chapter 6, it says this, So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. That's the message I spoke about to you earlier. That's the message that John was speaking about to other people. That's what John was saying to Herod about turning from sin and turning to Jesus. And I say prophetic In the sense of proclaiming truth, when you think about prophecy, you could think of it really in two categories, foretelling, that is you're telling the future, and forthtelling, that is proclaiming something that is true, the truth of God. The message given to John is that forthtelling, a message that we are called to proclaim. And as I studied this passage, and as I prayed for you, and I prayed for myself, and I prayed for this morning, I found myself thinking something over and over. We have the same message and the same spirit as John did. But where are the prophets of our day? Where are the men and women of God who seek the presence of God? Where are the people 
who, like Moses, would ascend the hill of the Lord and be in the presence of God and come down with face ablaze, having been in the presence of the holy, holy, holy Lord of hosts. Where are the prophets of our day who spend time with so great a God, so convinced of his holiness and his purity and his perfection that when they look out across the landscape of the world, they cannot stand the sin that is around us and call people out of the sin and into living righteous and holy lives. Where are the prophets of our day? Some of us need to be shaken by the Holy Spirit of God this morning. We are called to live lives set apart for God and for his glory. That we would be, that Christ's community, us, our faith family, that you and I, brothers and sisters, I'm in this too, this is me too, this is the cry of my heart, that we would be people bent on being in the presence of God and calling others out of sin and to the glory of God. That we would live a holy life That as the psalmist says, we would seek his presence continually. And in being filled with his presence, filled with his spirit, we would deliver the only message that will bring people from eternal judgment into eternal joy. We proclaim the same message, that same prophetic message. How else do we follow in John's footsteps? We, we walk the same hard road. John walked a road that led to the executioner's blade. Jesus walked a road that led to a Roman cross. We walk the same road. To be a disciple of Jesus is a summons to die. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says it simply and clearly, and you've probably heard him say it before. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. This is the road of a disciple of Jesus. And if you follow Jesus, you will die. Listen again to Bonhoeffer. This is that quote, that short sentence I just read you in context. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It may be a death like that of the first disciples, who had to leave home and work to follow him, or it may be a death like Luther's, who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world, but it is the same death every time, death in Jesus Christ, the death of the old man to his call. Let me explain just very briefly. Though John's body ceased its functioning when that blade fell on his head, John had already died a long time ago before that. He reckoned himself dead to the world. He had a new life, a life that was hidden in Jesus the Messiah. And the same is true for you if you trust in him. If you have trusted in Jesus, you are already dead. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. But Christ who lives in me, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I will tell you this. There's a lot we can say about that, but I'm going to tell you this. Those who reckon themselves dead to the world and alive to God, those are men and women used by God. 
They are the ones about whom Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loses his life, whoever loves his life, will lose it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. How are we like John? We preach the same prophetic message. We walk the same hard road. And then the last way, we reach the same glorious end. Herod, by the time Jesus' disciples are spreading the word, is so scared and guilt-ridden that when he hears that Jesus, what Jesus is doing, he assumes that this is zombie John the Baptist. John the Baptist, right? John has come back from the dead, and he is out to get me. He's going to execute judgment. Let me, let me just show you that. Verse 16. But when Herod heard of it, that is, of Jesus' miracles and, the, and what he was doing, when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. The language here, when you get inside of it, is actually devastating. What Herod is saying here is he's saying, I did it. I'm the one. He is crushed. It's as if he's looking into a mirror. He is seeing himself. He is seeing the horror of what he has done, and he is haunted. Herod, for all of his money and his power and his his stuff and his women and his life and everything that he had, he is dead. He has loved his life and lost it for eternity. But this passage ends in, a, in an interesting way. Do you remember? It has John's disciples wrapping his body and laying it in a tomb. And that might remind you of someone else. Someone else whose body was wrapped and laid in a tomb. It was Jesus. Jesus' disciples came and did that. But Jesus did not stay in the tomb. Jesus rose from the dead. He was the firstborn of the resurrection from the dead. John will rise. And brothers and sisters, if you trust in Jesus, you too will rise. So, how are we like John? We preach the same prophetic message. We walk the same hard road. We reach the same glorious end. Why is this passage here? It's an illustration of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. The message that we proclaim is the one that saves souls. Will you seek him? Will you be in his presence? Will you proclaim that message? The road we walk is well trod by suffering saints that have come before us. You are already dead. Christ lives in you by faith. And that life bears much fruit. In the end, don't forget this, the end, no matter when our life ends, is secure and sure because Jesus walked this road first and for you, our destination is glory. Your destination is with him. I'll tell you that the reports that I hear from Adam in jail, we get reports every once in a while, are that there is much fruit, both in him and through him. God did not abandon John. 
he will be raised. God has not abandoned Adam in jail. God is with him right there, right now, today, and has been and will be. And he will not abandon you. He is with you on this road. Brothers and sisters, will you not proclaim the same message? Will you not walk the same road? Will you not reach the same end? Jesus, our Lord, has led the way. Let's follow him. Pray with me. Lord, thank you that you led the way for us. That's what makes this all possible and totally worth it. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for the hope of heaven. Thank you for those that have come before us. Thank you for the message of the cross. Lord, I pray that if there are those today who have not trusted in you, that they would today repent of their sin and believe in you for the forgiveness of sin. And I pray, Lord, that we would all be amazed again at all that you have done for us in leading the way to glory through the road of the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.